This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 29th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, news writer Jocelyn Kaiser talks about the pre-print puzzle, publishing research without peer review. For this month's book segment, Jen Goldbeck talks with Sandra Postel about Replenish, the virtuous cycle of water and prosperity. And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here via phone uh, to talk about some recent online stories. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Sarah. Okay, let's get right to it. Let's quickly get to very fast heartbeats in bats. Uh, This piece, this story opens with a really kind of surprising description of the life of a bat. I had no idea that they had it so tough. So Dave, what is a bat face when it goes out looking for food? Well, you know, this, this concerns a particular species of bat in Panama, and I'm probably going to n- mangle the name. The scientific name is uh, Euroderma billobottom bats, and these are kind of mouse-sized bats. They build tents out of giant leaves, uh, but they also live their lives on the edge of starvation. And what that means is they basically survive on fig juice, but they're also flying all night to get that fig juice. And so if they don't find the fig juice... They don't basically have the calories they need to keep on living. And so they can basically die just going in search of fig juice. So the question has has long been, these guys are spending so much energy and flying so far and so fast. How are they able to sort of regulate their metabolism so they're just not basically starving to death every day? And so the story now is they're doing something with their heartbeats. To deal with this unpredictability of care, of calories, the bats vary their heartbeat uh, extremely. What's the range? Yeah, it's kind of cool. Actually, the, the, even the methodology here is kind of neat. The researchers created these, or I'm not sure if they created them, but they attached these mini heartbeat monitors to the bats, and then they had these antennas that they had to hold to get the signal from the heartbeat monitor, which was sort of sending its data remotely, and they were basically sort of crashing through the jungle at night, trying to follow these bats around and measuring their heartbeats. And so one of the things they found, which isn't ter- terribly surprising, is that the bats' heartbeats is really fast when they're flying around. It's it's can be over a thousand beats per minute. Now that's okay, not. Wait. 
how does that compare to us? So that's, that's, you know, we peak at about 240. So that's, you know, almost five times what we achieve. And especially, you know, for, for a creature the size of the bat, that's actually pretty impressive. It's not a record, um, but it's uh, what are the other top contenders? Well, so we've got hummingbirds, which are about twelve sixty beats per minute, and Etruscan shrews, which I think <laughs> are the record holder at fifteen hundred beats per minute. The bats' hearts, you know, it's still pretty fast. And um, but what was most remarkable is that when the bats decided to slow down and and rest, their heartbeat went down to about three hundred beats per minute, and they were actually able to get it down to about. 200 beats a minute which is you know so much slower than it is at this maximum rate you know mm-hmm. and so the idea is is it that that by really slowing down their heart rates um it's sort of like going from being a human sprinter to a long distance runner in terms of what you're challenging your heart with and that transition seems to save the bats about 10 percent of their energy budget every day uh they did some experiments in the lab too so that was all from the field where they fed the bats different kinds of uh, fig juice and some other sweet stuff, and they were able to monitor their metabolism even more closely. What did they see there? Well, what was really interesting is they, they found that it takes the bats only about eight minutes to begin to burn up the fig juice, or in this case, they gave them agave nectar, um, which means that these these bats really are living kind of on the edge of starvation, that that they're, they fly to a fig tree, they load up on basically sugar water, and they are burning that sugar water up. They're burning those calories up really, really fast. And so they've got to get to another tree as soon as they can. Again, otherwise, at least according to this research, they're just going to basically burn through all the fuel they have. Now we have a story on wombats. No relation to those (laughs) those Panamanian bats we were just talking about. Um, Wombats these days are about yay big. I'm holding my hand next to my knee. They're about knee high, medium dog size. But back in the day, say 300,000 years ago, wombat relatives were much much bigger. How big, Dave? Yeah, they were about the size of a rhinoceros. Uh, The particular wombat relative we're talking about here is called Diprotodon, and he was about 1.8 meters tall and weighed nearly 3,000 kilograms. So okay, this was how much did the females weigh? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was knew you were going to get me on that. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe she. I don't know. <laughs> right. So we actually knew there were these really big wombat-like creatures running around Australia, but what we didn't know was that they moved around so much, right, Dave? And it's not just moving around. It appears they had a seasonal migration. They actually moved from one location to another, and they did that same move every year, it looks like. And if that's true, this would be the only seasonal mass migration among marsupials. You know, you can imagine it's kind of, you know, there's actually an artist representation, which looks kind of crazy, but, you know, these rhino-sized wombats migrating across the floodplains of Australia, kind of like you know zebras and antelopes, move across Africa Serengeti today. Hmm. And how did the researchers figure out that they were going place to place and also doing it repeatedly? Well, so one of the interesting things about Diprotodon is it's got these really um, big teeth uh, that never stopped growing, and 
what this allows scientists to do is the teeth essentially become like tree rings. So every year they're absorbing different isotopes depending on where they are and what kind of food they're eating. And so what the researchers were able to do is go through those teeth and reconstruct the history of these creatures and see that, you know, at one point in the year they always seem to be in a particular place. And another point in the year, they seem to be at another particular place, which is about 200 kilometers away. And then they would repeat that cycle year after year, at least according to what the researchers are seeing in the teeth. So is this the earliest migration of a marsupial or the only migration of a marsupial? It would be both. Um, and so, you know, a little bit more evidence is needed. But it seems to be, for at least now, the first time any marsupial, living or extinct, has been shown to do these regular migrations. Last up, we have a story on another kind of migration, bedbug migration. It might have seemed to you that the hype about bedbugs, you know, they're in movie theaters, they're in the subway, they're everywhere, was kind of just, you know, a way to get people's attention and and to write news stories. But scientists have confirmed it. Bedbugs have undergone a rapid global expansion. Why, Dave? How? What are they doing? How are they getting continent to continent? Well, it wouldn't be accurate to say actually bedbugs have taken over the world because what they've really done is retaken over the world. By the mid-20th century, they were pretty much everywhere. But then we had all these pesticides. Um, But then what happened was a lot of these pesticides got banned. So the bed bugs came back, plus air travel became a lot more ubiquitous, which allowed these bed bugs to sort of get to every nook and cranny in the globe. So this is the second time we've faced off against our fiercest foe. That's right. I don't know if it's our (laughs) fiercest foe, but definitely one of our most annoying foes. And one of the things that this article points out is that they don't actually hang out on a person all the time like lice. They hop on, have a meal, (laughs) and then move on. That's right. So the question is, how do they get these long distances? Are they just like hiding inside of airplanes? Well, right. You know, if their presence on us is pretty transient, you know, how are they getting on airplanes in the first place? And that's sort of what this study was about. And the, the hypothesis the researchers went in with was, Maybe bed bugs are attracted to our stinky laundry. Maybe they're hanging out in our stinky laundry. And when we pack, you know, if we have that that in our luggage, you know, if we haven't, if not all of our clothes are clean, maybe the bed bugs are hitching a ride in our luggage. And that's how they're sort of making their way around the world. So I'm just so glad I didn't have to make a movie about this because they did a study where they put bed bugs and dirty laundry in a room. And then what happened? Right. So they put bed bugs in the middle of the room and they had clean laundry on one side and dirty laundry on the other side. And they let the bed bugs go for, I believe, a few days. And what happened was at the end of about 96 hours, uh, there were twice as many bed bugs on the dirty laundry than on the clean laundry. Hmm. Okay, so that is the secret to attracting a bed bug. <laughs> so they prefer dirty to clean. So just keeping your dirty stuff sealed up, is that enough to kind of prevent them from, you know, going from your hotel room into your luggage and then coming home with you? Well, right. So, I mean, they they seem to prefer dirty laundry because they are attracted to our scent and we're going to have much more of our scent on dirty laundry than on clean laundry. So, yeah, one a suggestion is to keep your dirty clothes sealed up and definitely keep them far away from your bed. Another suggestion is if you're out traveling, if you've got a suitcase, put it you know way up on those sort of metal racks that some hotel rooms give you because apparently uh, bed bugs, though they're very insidious, can't climb up smooth surfaces. And you should keep in mind that even if you do seal up your dirty laundry, your luggage may still stink <laughs> from the oh. other dirty laundry you had. So, you know, you really got to be vigilant to keep these nasties away. Okay. Thank you for that, Dave. What else is on the site this week? 
Well, Sarah, we've got a story uh, making a lot of news this week about the fourth detection of gravitational waves and what it means for finding the black hole sources of these waves. Also a story about engineering mosquito microbiomes to make them resistant to malaria. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about the impact of the most recent hurricane on Puerto Rico and especially the impact on a lot of the science that's going on there. Also a story about why so few authors choose anonymous peer review. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. Support for today's show comes from Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible you own your books, so you can access them anytime, anywhere, from almost any device. Plus, thanks to the Great Listen Guarantee, if you don't like your title, you can swap it out for a new one. Right now, I'm actually reading Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, and this is where Audible and my reading habits really fit together. I read on the Kindle app, but on a phone. I know, it's criminal, but it means I always have my book with me. I don't need a separate device or a book to carry and forget places. And then I have the the Audible add-on so I can smoothly switch between reading and listening. I don't have to stop reading to do chores or commute. It just works perfectly for the way that I read, switching back and forth between listening, reading, depending on the situation. So check out Audible. And of course, if you haven't read it, check out Seven Eves. I'm only halfway through though, so I thoroughly endorse the first half. And Audible is offering a giveaway to our listeners. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash science mag. That's www.audible.com slash science mag, S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G, for a free audiobook with your 30-day trial. This week, we published a guide to biology preprint servers, what they are, how they're used, and why some are worried about them. Staff writer Jocelyn Kaiser wrote the guide and is here to take us through it. Welcome, Jocelyn. Hi, Sarah. Okay, so my understanding of a preprint server for scientific papers is that anyone can post some results, some research that he did, and there's no peer review ahead of time, but they might get feedback on the paper after it's posted. Is that is that accurate? That's pretty much how it works. Um, a scientist has written up a paper that they're going to submit to a journal, but they don't want to necessarily wait until it appears in the journal to share it with their colleagues. So they can post it on one of these servers, which are free usually. It's really just screened to make sure it's genuine science, and then their colleagues can see it and maybe even comment on it long before it appears in a journal. Mm -hmm. And now the reason that we're writing about this in the magazine now is because, you know, this has been around for a few decades for physicists, but now it's spreading out to biology. Why has there been this lag between when physics adopted the preprint server ideology and now biology getting on board? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of them may be that until a few years ago, there wasn't a, a nonprofit server for biology 
that um, scientists felt comfortable using and started sending their papers to. NIH, the National Institutes of Health, tried to launch one in 1999, but publishers didn't like it and stopped it. And so it's really um, only in the last four years that a nonprofit laboratory called Cold Spring Harbor National Laboratory has started a server for biology called BioArchive, and scientists started using it, and now it's it's really taken off. And that's gotten a big funder behind it as well, right? Yeah, the uh, Zuckerberg-Chan um, initiative, um, which was founded, I guess, just a couple years ago and has a lot of money, has put an undisclosed amount of money into BioArchive. Let's talk about the spelling of these things for one second. <laughs> Can you spell BioArchive for us? Yeah, it gets very confusing because it's not just the spelling, but which letters are capitalized. Right, okay. And so BioArchive is spelled B-I-O-R-X-I-V is BioArchive. And but it's not capitalized, but the R is a capital R. Okay. And, and the, this yeah. is based on the format from the original, the physics one, and that's spelled just archive with no bio at the beginning. Yeah, right. Yes. So now biology is getting on board without as much pushback from the publishers. But this is a controversial thing besides um, on the publishing side. What are people worried about if they decide to put their paper on a preprint server? Yeah, well, the the main thing they're worried about is being so-called scooped, which means they're afraid that some competitor will see their preprint and say, oh, I've been working on the same thing, and they will rush their paper into a journal and claim that they were the first because they're the first to get it into the peer-reviewed journal when this other group had posted on a preprint previously. Whether these preprints will be given the same sort of standing as a paper in a peer-reviewed journal. So, And also people are worried about that a journal, some journals still will not accept papers that have been posted as preprints. What about the opposite of that first scenario where someone rushes something out onto a preprint server to be able to say, me first, me first, and then someone else who's going through the peer review process gets scooped? Right. I think that can also happen. Yeah. So I guess the answer to that would be for people who advocate using preprints is that the group sending their paper to a journal should also send it to BioArchive, and then they'll be sort of staking their claim before that other group. Right. And what about publicity? I mean, embargoes are a pretty big deal in journals. How does that work? Certain journals, yeah. And so, um, for example, Science Magazine, which sponsors this podcast, tells authors that if they talk about a paper they have posted as a preprint to the press, it may affect whether science decides to accept the paper because it could affect the novelty if it's gotten a lot of media attention because of the preprint. Okay, so we kind of talked about all the downsides. Why would someone want to do this? What's the advantage for a scientist? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why scientists might want to post or biologists might want to post their papers at preprints as preprints. And the biggest one is that they're sharing their results with other scientists many months before they might appear in a journal. And so people who like this idea say that's going to make science move faster. It's also going to help young scientists who are applying for a job or maybe for a grant and their papers are not out in journals yet, but if they can list the preprints and they can get credit for it. So those are two reasons. And I thought this was kind of an interesting question. How polished should a preprint be? I mean, figures, references, methods, does it all have to be in there and pretty grammatically correct? Right. Well, it depends on who you talk to. Some people say that they the preprint is pretty much what they're going to send to the journal, and they've checked all those things. They've checked their figures. They've checked for typos. But other scientists, they're not necessarily posting things full of typos, but they want to get feedback on their paper before they submit it to a journal. So they post a version on a, a preprint server, and they hope that they'll get feedback from colleagues, either 
directly through comments or maybe emails, and then they're going to refine it and maybe, you know, address some things people have brought up and then maybe post another version. And then eventually they send it to a journal. Does anyone see this as the future of scientific publishing? So forget peer review, forget publishers. Everyone's just going to post the results on preprint servers. Yeah, I think there's at least a few scientists out there who see it that way, who kind of can envision a time when we don't need journals anymore because scientists just post their papers as preprints and their colleagues peer review them openly through the preprint and then validate them that way. And then they, you know, I don't know if they'd get a stamp of approval or what, but they wouldn't wouldn't need to go to a journal. But I think the vast majority of scientists still think we need journals because they do a much more thorough, um, standardized way of, of checking the quality of the paper and and uh, that journals are here to stay at least for a while. Okay. Jocelyn, thanks so much for talking with me. It's good to be here. Jocelyn Kaiser is a staff writer for Science. She writes about the preprint puzzle this week in the magazine. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to the September book segment of the Science Podcast. This month, I'm talking with Sandra Pastel about her book, Replenish, The Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. So, Sandra, I'd like you to start by talking to us a bit about why we have so much infrastructure around water, because there's a lot of water in the world. We've got a lot of access to it. So why have we done so much engineering to move water around and control where it goes? You know, nature's great about providing water, but it's not always where and when we need it. And so it's been a lot of infrastructure development to basically make our needs for water um, met by, you know, by that supply. And so that's meant a lot of dams, a lot of levees, a lot of river diversions over time. And that's been, it's hard for me, it's hard to imagine a world like we have today of what, seven and a half billion people, $80 trillion a year in economic activity without dams and diversions and the ability to control water. It's just hard to imagine. You discuss in the book how these engineering projects that work against the natural movement of water have been problematic. They change ecosystems, they cause flooding, and you advocate for a more balanced approach to water management. Can you give us some examples of how a more naturally oriented water engineering project has worked? Well, I think flooding is, a, is actually a great example because our approach to controlling floods has been to build levees alongside rivers, along with dams and reservoirs to be able to capture and store flood water and then release it later. But if you think about that, what you're doing with, for example, a highly levied river system is you're preventing the river from naturally using its floodplain to both capture flood water and store that water for later use, returning it to the river more gradually. If you build a levee, you're basically causing the river to, to narrow. And, and then, of course, in a flood situation, its height goes up and it rages down that river system more dramatically than it would if it was allowed to use its floodplain. So, for example, the Mississippi River is, has flooded a number of times just looking at, at uh, the last you know century. And one of the worst was in the late 1920s, and it led... Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to basically ask Congress for permission, in a sense, to rethink the flood control system. And while levees, you know, were still to be the basis of it, the idea was to establish what they called floodways, where there was sort of an exit ramp, you know, for a raging Mississippi to leave the main channel and reconnect with part of its floodplain. 
And the idea was to only use this in very rare circumstances because this would be somebody's private farmland. Um, but it did have to be used in the last big flood we had on the Mississippi, which was in 2011. And that system actually worked very well. It was the first time a number of these floodways had to be put into action at the same time. And while it did cause some harm to, you know, to those private landowners, they had been prepared for it. And I think it, you know, it raises a, a series of questions about our policies around floodplains and how much of rivers need to reconnect with that floodplain to have the most reliable, economically uh, efficient and safe way of managing our floods. The subtitle of your book is The Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. So we've put a lot of effort into engineering water and with the impact of climate change coming, we're talking about more engineering actually. So I'd like you to take a minute to discuss how moving to a less engineered system may actually lead to more prosperity. You know, we used to think that taking water out of a river, out of a lake, draining a wetland was the way that you use water to, to, to increase economic growth and, and build prosperity. But now we're seeing, no, not so much. I mean, you can get more value out of water if you use it smarter. I mean, a great example is, I love this work we're doing in, in the Verde River in Arizona, one of the you know, very rich bird um, habitat areas in the Southwest, tributary to the Colorado River, where it's, you know, the river was basically going dry um, during the summer irrigation season when farmers would basically take the entire flow of the river out for irrigation purposes. And working with farmers, the Nature Conservancy of Arizona, with support from others, including the Change the Course program, you know, basically helped install these automated head gates that allow farmers to remove just the water they need for their irrigation and to leave the rest in the river. Farmers get what they need, so there's no loss in, in agricultural production. The river gets more flow, so it's better for fish, better for birds, better for recreation. And so that's, that's a way to increase the value of water. You now have a healthier river that's supporting recreational opportunities, an asset to the community, and you haven't lost anything in the way of agricultural production. And we need to see more of those, I think, kinds of win-win solutions. And Again, I think businesses are beginning to step up to the plate, realizing they have a water footprint that they want to balance. And, and that's what our, the Change the Course program helped to start is, is trying to do, is to, is to provide those opportunities for restoration that help both people and businesses balance their, their water footprints. And so building those opportunities up, um, I think, is, is the key. And it's, it's beginning to, to take off. I think it's both a resilience motivation as well as just seeing these multiple benefits that can come when we when we put nature back in and 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 value water properly. Well Sandra Pistel, it's been great to talk with you about your new book. The book is Replenish the Virtuous Cycle of Water and Prosperity. And that's it for September. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can leave us a comment either about the book or the podcast on the book section of the Science Magazine website called Books at All. And we'll be back in October with another book to add to your pile of reading. Thanks for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or 
listen to us on the Science Site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.